0: Yes and Marketing, the podcast for people who believe that great ideas can come from anywhere. I'm your host, Steve Pacross. Join me for conversations with eclectic marketers and creative thinkers. Yes and Marketing is brought to you by Verblio, the friendliest content creation platform in the business. We cover a lot of ground on the show, but one area that has come up again and again is psychology. There's a reason entrepreneurs, CEOs, thought leaders, and industry strategists are all interested in the field. It underpins everything we do as marketers and as humans. From more technical concepts like cognitive biases and behavioral economics to the simple truths behind happiness, here are a few of our favorite bits of psychology-related wisdom from the last year of the show. To kick it off, we're going back to episode 49 where Rory Sutherland, vice chairman of Ogilvy UK and a renowned author of Alchemy, the dark art and curious science of creating magic in brands, business and life, first told us why we should bother with psychology at all.
1: Once you admit psychology in, into your toolkit, into your arsenal, then the number of ways of solving a problem goes up exponentially. And this is why I think government's such a mess, because they only look to lawyers and they look to economists to solve everything through legislation and through the incentive mechanism. Well, I mean, that's a completely, you know, that's like playing golf with one club. You know, it's utterly insane. And so once you actually allow persuasion, creativity, reframing, uh, you know, behavioral science and, and, you know, epistemological solutions into the possible solution set, then the scope for creativity just gets 10 times bigger. And uh, that's what really excites me about it. It's effectively a way of, of, of increasing the size of the playing field for creatively minded people.
0: Tim Riester is Chief Visionary at B2B Decision Labs, in addition to being a highly respected speaker and author. On episode 60, Tim broke down the components of status quo bias, explaining why people won't change and what we as marketers
2: should do about that. People will not change to get more or less the same. That's the bumper sticker for this. People don't change. They won't take the risk of change to get something that they believe is more or less the same. So they need contrast to make a decision. The problem is if they don't see contrast in your solution, they're going to stick with status quo. Or if they're going to make a change and they still don't see contrast between you and the competitors, then they use price. Price is not a budget problem. Pricing is a contrast agent. They're like, everything seems the same. So if somebody gets a lower price, I'm going to take that because it helped me make a decision. But they will tell you it's a budget issue. But the reality is, is they're really just trying to create some justifiable contrast between what appear to be similar, hard to discern, difficult to select competing vendors. So selection difficulty requires contrast between the current state and the future state. So you got to show vast, big contrast for them to perceive value. This is where people on the other side, the expansion sale go, oh, really? Think about it. I just said people will not change to get more or less the same. So when you're the incumbent, Part of your job is to just make sure your customer knows that you've got them covered. You don't have to show big, huge differences between you and the competition. In some ways, you just got to say, we got your back. If you're hearing about these things out there, we got that. If you're wondering about this thing the analysts are saying, it's on our roadmap. And and so in the existing customer relationship, you lean into this idea of selection difficulty and that actually appearing more or less the same is to your advantage because nobody is going to take the risk at that point of making a change if they're going to get exactly what they already have. So it's just really counterintuitive, but really interesting to see that is 180 degrees different, right?
0: And on episode 73, Dave Kellogg, advisor, director, angel investor, blogger, and all around marketing thought leader expanded on that same idea of the importance of creating contrast and how to use that psychology in your favor,
3: whichever side of the sale you're on. Marketing's job is to impose simplicity. Period. Like the world is complicated. Everything's complicated. There are shades of gray and everything. Our job is to make stuff black and white, period. Right. Um, That makes it easier to sell. Marketing's job overall is to impose simplicity on a complex universe. And and when it comes to messaging, it's to try and create as much black-white messaging. We have it, they don't. That's black-white messaging. Gray messaging is we do it better than they do. And gray messaging is so much harder for a salesperson to deal with in black and white messaging. Concrete example, when I was at Host Analytics, we had a planning module and a consolidation module. Adaptive Insights only had a planning module. That's black, white, right? Hey, we have consolidation. They don't. What they did, which was very smart, is they built a very flimsy consolidation module. Why? To turn our black, white message gray. And it works <laughs> because all of a sudden the conversation changed. After I was there about a year, the conversation changed from, well, I bought hosts because they had consolidation and Adaptive didn't, to now we're in a quagmire of debate about why our consolidation is better than their consolidation, uh, right? So, so your job when you're playing offense on marketing is to try and make things black and white. When you're playing defensive marketing, it's to try and make things great.
0: David Cancel is the CEO of Drift and a Category Creating Entrepreneur. On episode 45, he warned us about the dangers of ego and the impossibility
4: of changing behavior. Most entrepreneurs, and this is the danger of being an entrepreneur, even for for myself as well, uh, still, which is like our egos get wrapped up in everything, right? So like we all have egos, right? And so we all have egos and you have to learn how to control the ego because if you can't control the ego, you cannot keep learning, right? Once the ego fully takes over, uh, you cannot listen anymore. And When you cannot listen anymore, you cannot grow because you cannot listen to the market and cannot listen to yourself, can't listen to your team. And this is the trap that most entrepreneurs fall into. And so that then ends up resulting in them wanting to create demand out of nothing. Uh, you know, have a better, you know, convince themselves that they. And I did this myself, and I still do this sometimes. So you know, I'm speaking to myself that they're going to create some magical thing. That everyone's going to switch to, and it's so much better. If I can only tell you how much better it is, but the truth is, is, we cannot switch demand. We cannot change someone's behavior, right? Like behavior change is the most impossible thing, right? And we can just look at the analogs in our own life, right? We can look at why is it so hard for all of us to maintain a certain level of fitness or weight, you know, uh, or desired weight when we already know the answer. We don't need an industry, this massive industry that exists. Uh, to try to market to us and sell us products to try to lose weight. We already know the answer. The reason is that the behavior change is next to impossible. And so like entrepreneurs should see that pattern. It already exists in our lives and say like, wow, I should build on an existing uh, behavior change and uh, and not try to cause behavior change myself because most of us will die trying.
0: And to continue that idea on episode 48, messaging strategist and idea whisperer Tamson Webster talked about the difficulty of changing not only behavior, but also beliefs and gave us a practical example of what works instead.
5: Marketing, a lot of times, is based on this idea of creating a need, right? Between, you know, creating a want in somebody, instilling one that wasn't there before, or in instilling a belief that wasn't there before. But what I learned as a Weight Watcher leader is that. That's that while that's possible, it really isn't the most powerful way to get people to change um that that it's much easier for someone to do something when they see it as already aligned with something that they already want. It's a lot easier to get someone to do something when it's aligned in a way with something they already believe. One of examples that that often works that explains a lot of this really well <laughs> it starts actually with a problem that a lot of people have when they're trying to lose weight and and that is that they, they snack at night. And there's a lot of night snackers. This is very much an identity they have about themselves. Now, a conversation for another day, to last, whether or not that identity is true, doesn't actually matter because we self-fulfill what we tell ourselves about ourselves. But they believed that they were night snackers. At the same time, they really wanted to lose weight. This is not a, They weren't just giving lip service to this uh, at all. Um, and yet they were there was a problem, which was that their desire to lose weight and their night snacking were going right up against this program, the plan that Weight Watchers had, which was failing them. In in so let me just back up real quick. The way Weight Watchers works then and now is essentially you get like a budget of what are called points. You know, you get points, you have points, food has points, your job is to make those things match. So let's say I've got 23 points to eat in a day. I need to make sure that of the food and drink that I take in, it's as close to 23 as possible. Okay. Night snackers would get to a point where they get to the end of the day and they were out of points. And that was really, really frustrating to them. And so I could either say to them, well, don't eat at night. Well, how's that going to work? Well, they consider themselves to be a night snacker and their entire habitual lives as eaters have probably been to do. So, okay. I can either tell you to stop doing and being a thing that is deeply you. I could tell you, you're right. You're a night snacker. This is never going to work for you, which goes against something that they deeply, deeply want. Or I can say, you know what? The points are just for a 24 hour period. It doesn't say anywhere that those 24 hours has to start in the morning. So why don't you start those 24 hour, those points at night. Why don't you start them with dinner so that you have all of your 23 points to start from dinner and afterwards. And then you have fewer during the day when you have more control over it. And I cannot tell you how many minds that blew like that, just that conversation about, you know what, you can still be a night eater. You can still do this. All you have to do is actually just think about this one little thing differently. And it was just that mindset shift could could make a huge difference because now they could now they could put themselves and say, ah, I can be the person I know that I am. I can I don't have to change who I think that I am. I can still get the thing that I want. And all I had to do was just think about this one little thing a little bit differently. And that's a lesson that absolutely so comes forward in the how I help people put messages together now, which is still the same thing. What do they already want? What do they already believe? Where is there some one place where you can just get the focus, the perspective to shift just a little bit? Because if you can get them to change how they see, you're going to get them to change what they do, because those two things are totally linked. How we see the world drives what we do in it. And so that's that's really what you're always trying to try to find. But yeah, that's idea that you could start the points at night was like, oh, like mind blowing to people.
0: On episode fifty-six, Kellogg Business School Professor Tim Calkins showed us how our psychology as consumers can blind us in comical ways.
6: Well, I had a wonderful time at Kraft. I was there for eleven years. I worked on all sorts of different brands, uh, uh, you know, Kraft uh, salad dressing and Miracle Whip and Taco Bell and lots of these different brands. And it was quite a, a journey. And I worked with some fabulous people, and I learned an enormous amount. One of the stories I. Really like that, that sort of gets to that same challenge of understanding what the consumers really want. We were doing some uh, ethnography work on Miracle Whip, and we were at somebody's house and just sitting in their kitchen and chatting with this consumer. And she was bustling about in her kitchen doing some things. And then we just asked her to get out a jar of, of Miracle Whip and open it up for us and make a sandwich for us. And uh, she's like, Oh, sure. And, and by the way, as we're doing this, we're asking her about Miracle Whip, and it's like, Is there anything? anything at all about this product that you could see could be improved or anything we could do and she's like no it's really perfect you know in every way there's nothing and and now as she's doing this she's getting out the jar mirror and then she's trying to open it and she can't open it she can't open the jar and it's got this plastic seal around the top of it and she said, they're trying to open this thing. It can't do it. She's working on that plastic seal, trying to, and then I recall she gets out this huge kitchen knife. It's like 12 inch long thing. And she starts like sawing at the miracle to try to open it. And, uh, and, and, and she starts jabbing at it. We're in a little words, she's going to chop off her hand at this point. And, but all the while, as she's doing this, she's like, no, it's perfect. You know, there's really nothing I can think of. And as she do it, and she could not open this thing to save her life, and But that speaks to the same challenge, is that very often the unmet needs that are out there, people can't express them because they're just not even aware of the problems that exist in their life. And it does speak to the need to go beyond just asking consumers what they are looking for, what they want. You've got to go way beyond that to understand and come up with product improvements and and new product ideas.
0: And in a similar vein, on episode 49, Rory Sutherland explained how our psychological biases can often run counter to what might be economically rational.
1: Contrary to economic logic, for many employees, a company car would be more valuable than the cash equivalent because it gives them a far flasher and blingier car than they'd ever feel comfortable buying with their own money and far better than the car they could justify buying to their spouse, if you think about it. OK, so you just say, I didn't want the heated steering wheel and the adaptive cruise control, but company gave it to me. There's not much your spouse can do to give you a hard time, is there? You know, it came with a heated steering wheel. What was I to do? Right. <laughs> Whereas so in many cases, actually enforced treats. May have a higher perceived value than the cash equivalent, even though you could spend the cash on a treat. So we had a lovely finding with Boots, which is a huge thing. Think of Walgreens; they're actually owned by Walgreens. In fact, they have this loyalty program where you earn points with all your shopping. And what used to happen is women would hand their would be ill, and they get sent to go to their husband and say, "Look, I really need you to go off and get some cold and flu remedies." Uh, so could you go down to Boots and get me some? And then just as the guy was leaving, they'd say, oh, and by the way, take my card so you can get the points. And the husband would then turn up at the till. He'd then go and find lavatory paper and shaving foam and a load of other crap. Turn up at the till, and the person at the till would say, actually, you can pay for all of this on points, okay? Each point's worth one penny. And the bloke would go, brilliant result, okay? I'll pay for it on points. You go home, say to his typically wife, because I think seven-eighths of, advantage card holders are female it's a chemist and cosmetic spender and so forth drugstore you call it sorry and um uh th- th- and the wife would be gutted brilliant i paid for the whole thing on points as well and the wife would be gutted now economically they have n- there is no difference between paying on points and paying in money but of course what was happening is She would have been saving up for a bottle of Chanel number five or Chanel number 19 or whatever, something which you can guiltlessly purchase on points, but you can't guiltlessly purchase with cash. And so the decision to pay on points versus paying in cash is economically irrelevant, but it's psychologically very, very different. And so, so this is the kind of thing where you come across this all the time, that effectively it's how, you make, how something makes you feel that counts. And spending a set amount of money feels different when it's points or a voucher, because you've effectively sanctioned the spend. I mean, a voucher kind of sanctions extravagance because you go, well, if I don't spend this fairly quickly, I'll probably lose it, or it might expire or something. So, so it's sanctioned treat. People need treats, by the way. It's, it's a really important point. Um, psychologically, we need the occasional indulgence, you know, L'Oreal put it very beautifully, because I'm worth it.
0: On episode 78, the godfather of modern marketing, Philip Kotler, explained how the role of emotions and subconscious biases in buying has evolved over time.
6: Buying is a more of an emotional experience than just a rational experience. Now, that may not be clear in marketing management, first edition, The, the role of emotions and who really buys and how they're motivated. So one of the things we got into was to recognize that maybe 90% of not only your decision as a consumer, but maybe 90% of your decision as a producer is guided by your sense of risk and emotional uh, ideas that are at a
0: subconscious level. On episode 43, Sunit Bhatt, president of mission-based company Boulder, told us all the formula for happiness and why we can never solve it.
7: Michael Norton, HBS professor, author of several incredible studies and incredible books, focuses a lot on happiness and he's actually involved his take on happiness. But one of, one of the things that he wrote, I think it was like 2017 or 2018, uh, published a study um, and he had conducted this study where he asked some of the wealthiest people in the world. I think he started in the US, but he'd done sort of pockets of these studies in other parts of the world as well. So like with the Dutch, for example, I remember. And he asked them, he said, all right, you folks are doing really well. You got, you know, a million dollars or equivalent of a million bucks. What do you need to be happy? All right. What do you think you would need to make to be happy? And no matter like where he ran the study, the answer everybody gave was I need about two to three times what I have right now (laughs) and I'd be happy. And what's funny is there, that has, that study has been replicated so many times. Uh, across different income brackets. And if you were to run the experiment, no matter what, and you were to find sort of that average, you would likely find that people would say the same thing. What do I need to be happy, successful, to like feel, feel like I'm good? And they would say, I need you know, two, whatever I have times two to three times three is going to put a smile on my face. So that's like the formula. And everyone's like silver bullet. It sounds great. The problem is what whatever you have keeps changing every time you multiply it. And so if you have a hundred thousand today and you get 300,000, 300,000 doesn't become what comes after the equal sign. It becomes the driver of the new formula. And that's, that. that to me was a game changer on this concept of happiness. And the reason, and this is, Professor Norton stuff, but he's like, uh, the way people frame these questions is wrong, right, in a sense, because what they say is, when they think about how they're doing, they say, okay, am I doing better than I was before? That's like the first thing. That's solid. That's like, have I myself made progress? I can get behind that question. Am I doing better than I was before? I think defining better is important, right? But at the end of the day, like if you're self-reflecting and looking for progress in some way, like I can get by that question. But the second question is, am, how am I doing compared to everyone else? And that's where it all falls apart. That's where it all falls apart. Because as you ex- move up, or as you move into different circles, your peer group, right? At the end of the day, you're always in the middle of your peer group, right? That's always what's going to happen. And so you're always doing average. And so you're never
0: happy. On episode 45, David Cancel explained why, as a CEO, psychology is not everything he does.
4: What was amazing was that when I joined HubSpot, you know, we were 200 people when I left we were over a thousand maybe like 1200 people uh, in that three years and not only adding a thousand people but moving into new markets rebuilt it 100 of the product went into new product areas built a CRM, did all that stuff and so from a lesson standpoint I think it reinforced for me a couple of things. One of them was that that it's all about the people because we changed so many things right and I, and it was easy to on the surface for me to geek out at HubSpot at the time, from a sales and marketing go to market machine, because I had never seen a sales or marketing machine like that in my life, still haven't and uh, so I keep that on that, but then underneath it was really understanding all right the people, the the how do you rally people, how do you repeat messages, how do you reinforce a message, how do you do that in the market, how do you do it internally? Wow, you have to do this over and over and over again. It never stops. That's why I call the job of the CEO like half, you know, politician, like a politi- uh, political campaign, constantly message testing, saying the same message over and over again. And for my personality type, you know, I bore myself after the first time I say something. And so, like, that's really hard, right? That's a real stretch to repeat yourself. I find it really difficult to repeat myself. And I've worked at it for a long time. Uh, I still don't like it at all, but I do it. And so, I learned that, like, how do you rally people? How do you get them excited? How do you reward people? How do you design incentives? There was like so many things there. It was really um, fast forward course in psychology because you had to deal with it at, at a hyperscale. The CEO job is just psychology, psychology of your team, your, your community, your prospects, your market, and your more, most importantly, yourself. When you get your MBA, they teach you all of these skills about marketing, accounting, strategy, and all of this type of stuff. And then you become
0: a CEO and it all becomes about psychology.
4: Yes, <laughs> yeah, and they never talk about that one time, and uh, and so sorry to rant. But like, but also when you're taught in the field in work, when you work about marketing, no one also talks about psychology. But it's all psychology, like the whole th- that that's all it is, right? It's just like how you communicate, the words you use, the you know how you want to connect with an audience or not connect with an audience, how you represent yourself, like all of those things are. Basically, what we're talking about with the cognitive biases are psychology. And finally, on episode 57, comedian and business
0: improv founder Bob Coolhan tied all the psychology back to the improv concept of yes and and explained how postponing judgment can expand our thinking and shift our perspective in
8: valuable ways. Postponing judgment's huge improvisationally, comedically, theater as a whole, and postponing judgment's so important in the business world. It's that ability to take off that critical thinking hat and defer judgment to another time. So classically, postpone judgment improvisationally is known as suspending judgment. What we found, though, is that telling people to suspend judgment actually has a negative connotation. They start thinking like, oh, my kid got suspended. And so that's a bad thing, as opposed to saying, be strategic. Can you postpone judgment? Can you defer it? strategically to another period of time. Now, all of a sudden, they're thinking toward that positive of, okay, I get to judge. I'll judge sometime, just not right now. Because again, if you're postponing judgment, you're not focusing on, most people start focusing on why they can't succeed or what's not right. They get critical very quickly. And what yes, and can do is allow you to start focusing on possibility and potential. It can allow you to start focusing on opportunity that's around you. And then you'll, you know, in that spirit of postponing judgment, get to the judgment. Can you actually use this opportunity or not? Yet, if you're only focusing on what you can't do or where it won't work, then that's where you'll find success. You'll find tons of places that these techniques, yes and, will not work, and people with whom they will not work because that's what you're focusing on as opposed to the opposite. Well, how do I take a powerful two word phrase and apply it as it relates to the unknown? Something outside of our our control. What how can we reduce it down to something inside of our control? And that's where yes and is a great technique on an individual level, on a personal level. Just postponing judgment, getting out of our own heads, coming up with ideas to solve problems, deal with the unexpected, market in a different way, you know, compete in a different way, learn from people, you know, not not figuring out that my competitors are doing this, that, and the other. Yeah, they are doing it. And what can I beg, borrow, steal, learn from them that can make my unique approach? hit the target better, faster, stronger, more accurately.
0: Thanks for listening to Yes in Marketing. If you enjoy the show or learn something new today, please take a minute to rate and
5: review us on Apple Podcasts, it means a lot, thanks.